we have the guest of honor coming to talk with us. I really appreciate you coming here, Hendrick. This is, you're a Kendrick spirit because our last names are pretty much the same. Just one letter off almost. Mine's Brinkman, yours is Brockman. But you left Germany, I think. And I I'm think... actually I'm actually stuck now in Germany since my flight back got canceled. But <laughs> yeah, usually I, I live in um, the UK. So I'm working for a, a small business bank called Tide um, and uh, leading up the, the data function there. So um, trying to build both um, analytics and uh, data science capabilities. And it's been quite, quite a ride. Yeah. Um, and for all of the Americans that are with us today, don't get confused. Tide is a financial, it's a fintech, right? It is not the stuff that you use to clean your clothes. There are two different tides, which can be confusing. But now that we've got that out of the way, I'm really excited to dive in today with you about your journey in machine learning and specifically these three different jobs that we spoke about before and how you had basically an MLOps understanding and it grew from one job to the next and you were able to iterate and make things better and make things better and until you landed at where you're at right now. So we're specifically gonna be talking about future pipelines, but uh, anything that you wanna add along the whole MLOps basically ecosystem is greatly appreciated too. Any insights that you've had, we should probably start with just learning about how you got into tech. Um, yeah, how did I get into tech? Um, kind of very coincidentally, to be honest. Um, I, um, I always uh, enjoyed um, automating things um, and kind of using technology to yeah, uh, help um, improve decision making, help um, yeah, build data related applications. And so I was, um, while I was at uni, I was helping um, a company to um, build like option pricing algorithms. So I originally wanted to be a trader, like doing some kind of algorithmic trading. And then through, through some circumstances, uh, ended up uh, consulting with um, yeah, credit companies and um, was building statistical models for them. At that point, I didn't even know that uh, data science was a thing. Um, so I uh, only after the fact realized that what I've been doing all along was uh, branded data science in kind of a very different community. Oh, nice. Um, and from there, I was uh, yeah starting to learn more about the, the different ways that uh, people were um, thinking about uh, problems that we previously discussed from, from very different angles. Mm -hmm. So my background is math, uh, econ, and specifically probability theory. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, very interesting um, transition in that sense. Nice. So then you went out, you got your first job, and this will be like a, I almost look at it like three epic journeys that you had along the way. Because when we were talking about this, and uh, when I asked you to come on the meetup, you explained to me your different roller coaster rides that you've had over the past years. And so maybe you can start with that first one, give us a little bit of an idea of when it was, because I know things have changed a lot since then. And then just talk us through what was happening when you were working there and what were, what problems were you trying to solve, all of that good stuff. Yeah, so um, I, I think like a lot of what you're going to hear here is not what 
um, I think like modern MLOps architecture looks like is more around um, like things that we did in the past and the personal learnings that I drew from it. Um, so the first one was around 2014, I think. And so I was working for a credit company there. And um, we were trying to um, risk assess um, companies that were, were coming in. And there were some interesting aspects to that from uh, um, like technical point of view. So the first one was, um, or the, the primary one is, these were new companies that we've never seen before. So I think a lot of the um, yeah, architectures at that front time were, were a lot focused on data pipelines for companies where you already have data in your data warehouse. Um, and you were trying to um, yeah, uh, score them um, based on some kind of behaviors that you already had um, previous experience for because um, a lot of the data in the data warehouse specifically at that time had quite a huge delay behind the, the operational system. So it wasn't really um, possible to, to use that data for uh, your operational scores. Um, so that was one thing. And then also the just putting models into production has been uh, a lot more difficult um, at that time than it is uh, today. So at that time we had a, a backend that was written in C-sharp and there weren't any kind of like easy ways to, to build microservices or we, we didn't know about them uh, anyway. And we, we wrote most of our model training in R at that point. And so we, we had this big problem of um, putting the model that was um, in the end, like something that exists in our code into um, our backend. So what we ended up doing was we figured out there was um, a language called um, F-sharp, uh, which uh, yeah, it's kind of functional C-sharp. And they had a concept called type providers. So you could um, write F-sharp scripts that were then instrumenting our code. Um, and you could pretty much um, access the same objects in there as well. And you could exchange objects um, in between each other. But it all compiled down to the, to the same uh, stuff that C-sharp uh, compiles down to. So um, what we ended up doing is we were writing our training pipelines in R. And then we had an F-sharp script that was instrumenting the um, R scripts to run all the, the training codes. And then we were uh, pretty much inspecting. So at that point, there was like an XGBoost kind of type of model. Um, and we were um, extracting the, the different weights um, of the different trees, uh, more or less manually out there, pickled these, these trees as an F-sharp object, and then re-implemented the, the inference code in, in F-sharp in order to, to get some kind of uh, model into production. Oh. Um, so it, it's been uh, quite, a, quite a long time to... And since since then, and I think uh, the community has come quite a long way. And um, but there were some oh, aspects, sorry, go ahead aspects that I thought are, are probably still quite valuable. So what I thought was was interesting, specifically for for that time, is that um, the whole pipeline actually was um, uh, automated, right? So um, everything that needed to be done was um, running this F# -sharp script, which you could even schedule, and then the whole like. Um, getting a data set from the data warehouse, running the whole training code, creating this pickled file and um, deploying that into what at that point ended up being a, a C-sharp library was all automated, which I thought was was pretty cool. Um, yeah, on the, the data pipelines, it was kind of interesting in the sense that um, the the contract to the, the wider company was pretty much the uh, C-sharp interface. So they handed us like a huge object over and then we use that to, to extract features um, and then put that into, into our model scoring uh, code. And do you feel there's like, was there a lot of technology boundaries at this point 
or was it mainly just the organization itself? What do you think were some hiccups that you were running into as you were trying to make things better? Um, so I think a lot of the, so I think like technology, I, I honestly don't have a, a good idea of when technology turned up. So I'm, I'm always not entirely sure whether it's just we were lacking knowledge about it or the technology just wasn't there. But definitely we weren't aware of, um, I think, the options that are that are out there uh, today. So we just tried to, to figure it out um, ourselves. And I think a lot of the issues, and I think that's, that's something that um, I think in all of technology um, is, is the case were more organizational boundaries than there were necessarily um, technical issues. Mm -hmm. So if you look at um, specifically the, um, the data pipelines, right? So the backend was then handing us over this like um, data object um, where we extracted our features out. So what that meant was it was a huge pain to add in additional data sources um, into our model because then we need to, to well, maybe we managed to, to get it um, uh, get the data through some kind of batch process that was available in the data warehouse. Um, and we managed to train our model based on the new data. But then we needed to somehow actually um, get that into, into the, the other pipeline as well. So the backend handing over that, uh, um, that data object. And that has been a, a very painful process. Um, primarily, not so much because of technological restrictions, but much more because um, organizationally, the data team has been quite uh, quite separate from the backend team, and trying to get stories into into their um, into their system has been like quite quite difficult, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I still see today, where um, it's very hard to convince other teams to expose some kind of data that you would need, or to um, yeah, uh, get them to fetch some data that's uh, not like directly relevant for them or not directly relating to, to some kind of use case. Yeah, so. and that's something we hear all the time on here. I mean, so many guests have come on and said that MLOps is an organizational problem. It's not a technology problem. And you can have all the tools you want, but if you run into problems like you encountered there, or if you're working on an old structure or whatever it is that the organization is not allowing you to have the real data they're giving you replicas of the data and it doesn't give you a replica of the full data sets you're looking at an organizational problem you're not looking at a technological problem so that's super interesting to hear and just confirm what what everyone else has been saying um any other learnings that you got from from that job that you want to pass along to us um yeah, I think, uh, like speaking, I mean, in the end, it comes down to the organizational problems as well. But that also meant it was a huge pain to actually test the, the feature pipelines. So while it was like um, technologically demanding to get the model into, um, into production, like you could actually uh, quite neatly test um, what was going on. So you could pretty much generate some test data and see whether both implementations were returning the same thing. Doing the same thing for the, um, for the features was hugely painful. Like, I don't think we ever really managed to do it uh, in that architecture, just because there was some data in databases, which we could see, and then the application code was doing some magic. And then in the other, um, at the other side, we were uh, getting uh, some data back. So that was, uh, it was well, uh, yeah, quite interesting learning that uh, influenced like later decisions that we, we drew. Yeah, and that's interesting. And you were saying you were doing all batch at that point, right? So the training data generation was batch, but then the in live inference 
it was a, a library that we um, gave to our backend team. And they were then on their end compiling some data. Then we were doing like additional transformation on, on our end against it. And um, which then ended up with a like huge feature vector. Actually, even at that time, that was like quite huge. I can't remember, like 160 or so that we had at that point. Oh, yeah. Oh, that sounds like fun. And let us know in the chat if anyone has worked with F Sharp, because that also <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun to work with. So now then you graduated from that job, right? You decided, all right, I'm going to move on to bigger and better things. And we'll go into phase two. What exactly was happening there at this second job? Yeah, so second thing I want to talk about, um, it was quite interesting because when I came, there were some things I think were, were quite nice, um, but some things were also like really, really terrible, even worse than the, the first one. And so what was nice is they had their own like a Python microservice in order to, um, to, do, the, uh, to do the predictions. Um, and also the, the whole model deployment with, with that was also quite uh, a lot easier. So if you're using the same language, it was very, very uh, simple at that point. But we also had uh, terrible issues in terms of the data acquisition. So what they were doing is they were running, they were writing SQL queries and stored procedures in a, like in a read replica of, of some kind of backend database in order to create the, the feature vectors, which was incredibly slow. So it took like minutes to create features, um, which like it's really not um, acceptable. Um, but there were some interesting aspects to that as well. So what they did is they they had these SQL queries that were creating inference um, features. And then the, they um, parameterized the, the SQL queries by pretty much injecting like IDs and timestamps to create the um, historical data set. So while I think like from a kind of like computational efficiency standpoint and from a like separation of concern standpoint, it was really, really terrible. But what was very interesting in, uh, in there is that pretty much like reusing the same code in order to, um, to generate your training data sets and generating your, um, uh, your inference code. I thought that was like a, a very interesting idea and something that we tried to, to keep um, uh, also afterwards. Mm. So we, like later on, um, underwent a, a proper separation, so all of that was was killed, and we started adopting um, like the backend specifically was starting to use um, domain driven design, and they started to communicate through events with mm -hmm. each other, and then so we we managed to migrate all of that to um, an event driven design, and that actually worked uh, worked quite well, where we could like have the same idea of having um, like local projections uh, in that case uh, against the events. And then generate our training data um, by pretty much doing the same thing um, of um, uh, creating some kind of transformations of historical events, not only of the events that are currently there. And was that how you did you eventually cut down the time that it took? Yeah, we did. So uh, in the end, it was, um, I mean, in the end, it wasn't really significant um, because we pre calculated um, everything. So the actual time was like um, less than 100 milliseconds, but also that that wasn't, isn't quite true in the sense that um, we pre-calculate, because it was event-driven, we managed to pre-calculate everything. And um, when it was needed, it was just a lookup in a database. So there wasn't anything happening there. Okay. And for those of us that are a little bit foggy on the terminology of transformations, can you break down what that is and why it's important? 
Um, sure. What is the a transformation? So um, you have like some kind of raw data, which can really be be anything. So it can be, um, I think what when we looked at it, it was mostly like some kind of JSON documents. So say like you buy a credit report, which nowadays comes in, in terms of a JSON, you get um, some data on like what are crime rates in a particular area. You get some data on um, uh, yeah, what other things was there, like um, like some kind of riskiness that is associated with um, like an email address or something like this. Um, so usually it's some kind of JSON, and then you would want to extract, turn that into numerical values that you could use. So um, that could be just extracting like a value from a um, like a credit report. It could also be things like um, what was the difference between um, events that were happening. So how long did whatever like a particular screen take, um, or um, yeah, uh, any kind of like. At that time we didn't, but um, you can also use uh, like some kind of uh, vectorization techniques to um, extract data from uh, yeah like natural text. So you really try to to turn raw data sources that you have available into something that is available um, as input to the machine learning model. Okay, yeah, and that was basically my next question was why this is important for the model and why it needs these transformations to happen? Well, it, it depends a little bit on what your notion is of uh, model, but the, the classical version pretty much takes um, numerical values as, as inputs. Mm -hmm. And um, with that uh, idea, you, you pretty much have to ensure that all the, like what's usually text fields get um, then somehow recoded into numerical values. Perfect. Perfect. So I've, I've been listening to everyone's feedback in the community. I just wrote a, uh, asked people to fill out a form on what we've been doing good and what we've been doing, we would like to see us do more of. And some people said, break it down real slow. So I'm trying to listen, people. I'm trying to get it broken down in a way that everyone from the newbies to the expert people can do it. And they also asked for Q&A sessions. So just in case you don't know, feel free to throw any questions of yours into the chat section or there's an actual Q&A that is there and we will try and get to them as fast as we can. So moving along, you did that. Did you feel like there was a graduation of sorts from your first job to the second job? And what were some key things like, Actually, I think what I'm most interested in is what are some things that you're like, I'm never going to do that again? <laughs> I think this whole idea on like um, having like uh, SQL queries run against operational databases is, or, or at least um, uh, this like feature calculation um, against operational databases is a really horrible one that I, I've never want to repeat in my, my life again. <laughs> Those from, caused a lot of headaches. Both from computational points of view, but also from uh, just separating out uh, contracts. So that, that was also pretty much the backend couldn't change their database without breaking our code, which is really, really horrible. Mm. And so that's a, a definite uh, learning. I think um, 
I learned a lot of uh, team composition. So um, we, we discussed um, already a lot of it as an organizational issue where we are now, I think, drawing the line between like where backend starts and where data starts, a little bit where data has a little bit like wider uh, scope, I think. Where, where do you feel like that is? Because that is something that we talk about a lot. And the idea of one person being able to run the whole spectrum or an MLOps engineer really for me i'm not sold on that idea yet like that shouldn't be just one person's job so how did you see things more clearly so i mean ideally you have this one person who can do um everything right but um i think it's just extremely hard to find these people so i think what what usually works much better is um just trying to build teams that um like have very diverse skill sets so where we now have um, application engineers, data engineers, and data scientists grouped together in teams um, so that there's much, much better um, communication between them. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, like trying to, like the end product that these people are supposed to produce is um, a service that is running um, in production. Um, and that service is not supposed to take like a lot of data directly but um, it's supposed to pretty much take in an idea and then return um, uh, like some kind of prediction. Mm -hmm. So that the whole data pipeline and like, how do we get the data? Is the data actually of good quality and so on? It's all within the control uh, of the team. And because in the end, um, that is what, what makes the team successful, right? So if some, some other team is, has ownership of a data pipeline um, and then breaks, like um, it influences the performance of some other team, which is really uh, not okay, right? So then that team yes. can't directly uh, succeed just because there's there's some external dependency. And I mean, in, in any organization, you never get these perfect, but um, we try to at least um, integrate all of them into one team. That's awesome to hear. That, and that's a great explanation too. Uh, and that's something, I guess, for another day and another topic, that is when a model breaks and it's out in production who owns that so the um the next question i guess or the natural progression of this is going to be that you moved on from that job and you landed at where you are now at tide is that correct yes so the the last team thing was actually referring to tide already so oh, okay nice but yes, um, so at that point, it was kind of interesting in the sense that we were like creating a lot of teams at, at quite like a high pace. And there were a lot of like um, issues arising uh, from that. Um, but what are we trying to do uh, different this time? So I think the first thing is um, we are trying to really stick to the uh, event-driven design. I think that was a very good um design decision so where we are aiming to um yeah create a lot of the features that we use for our machine learning models based on the events that are somewhere created in our backend and then also as much as possible at least use that um, in order to uh, build our historical uh, training data sets hmm. and this so was something you learned sorry to interrupt this was something you learned at the last job Yes, so I think, but uh, I think we scaled that up uh, quite significantly. Mm -hmm. So in the um, the the first one, we only um, uh, so a lot of it went through through one model, 
And whereas here we are reusing features across uh, different models, mm -hmm. which is, um, I think, like something that uh, we previously haven't uh, explored as much. Um, and we also started doing uh, the, like, um, using the data warehouse as a um, as a primary uh, data source. So in the previous companies, um, that wasn't really possible because. Um, it was pretty much a new company comes in and we needed to find like some kind of score against them. Whereas um, here we also have a decent number of applications where there's a lot of information which doesn't really need to be fresh. So we um, try to um, join these two together, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. So we're getting a question coming through in the chat and it's Rasona is asking, have you only worked with teams with one programming language? <laughs> they're saying theirs has three and two that are not Python. Uh, and it's a difficult challenge to say the least for the MLOps engineer on that. Was that yeah. ever your case? I mean, I know that on your first job, you were working with R and C sharp, right? Yeah. So, um, one of the nice things is since we started the team from scratch, we could standardized on Python, which was very nice. On the fir first job, it was um, C-sharp. In the second one, the backend was written in Ruby and we had our own services there. And in the third, now our backend is written in, in Java. Hmm. Um, yeah, it is a pain, right? So what, what, what can you say? Um, the, the only things that I, I think, I think at some point you just need to have some kind of abstraction against a microservice. So there are already um, like tools out there, such as SageMaker, that make it reasonably easy nowadays to just spin up an API against some kind of model. But I feel um, trying to to translate code directly is um, is a very painful undertaking. If there are like implementations of the same, like sometimes it works, right? Sometimes you have implementations of the same. Um, libraries in multiple languages, in which case the, the handover isn't terrible. But personally, I found it much, much easier to just have some kind of API extraction, in which nice. case it doesn't really matter what the, the languages are. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, we see a lot of these days, I feel like in software engineering, it's not so much a, a language thing as much. I mean, I see another question coming through in the chat that's asking, what's your language of choice? in MLOps? So yeah, I think like for the, um, the actual services, it's Python. And then for anything where you actually have like high um, data volumes, it's Spark or PySpark. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, nice. All right, let's keep moving. Let's stay on Tide for a little bit because I know you've got a lot of cool stuff going on there. Maybe it would be worth you telling us what exactly is going on at Tide, what are your use cases and why is it that, like, how has this reusing of features with different models enabled these use cases? Um, sure. So the ones that um, spring to mind is we, there are a lot of risk related ones. So um, trying to um, assess um, the risk of onboarding, so fraud risk, uh, credit risk, invoice, uh, default risk. Uh, these kinds of things. Uh, I think one of the things that I thought was quite quite interesting is um, we also have a model that um, uh, tries to match uh, invoices to transactions. 
So whenever you um, you do a new trends uh, trend, whenever you have an invoice raised against the company, you would like to know um, whether this invoice is getting paid. So we are trying to figure out for every new transaction that comes in, like is there a particular invoice that uh, actually pays off that uh, transaction, or is being paid off by that transaction, um, uh, in order to help uh, pretty much uh, SMEs to yeah. Uh, reduce their, their manual overhead, their manual admin by uh, not having to do that themselves. And I think the um, what we've seen is that specifically in the, the risk cases, but interestingly also for the um, uh, invoice um, uh, matching one, that there were a number of features of um, yeah, like risk-related ones uh, that could be reused. So uh, things such as like uh, invoicing patterns um, or um, there were some transaction patterns that we identified as risky as well that we could actually reuse in, uh, in different models as well. Um, I think what, what is probably worth uh, mentioning there is in terms of the, uh, the feature pipelines, one of the things that we did, what we started off um, building ourselves, but then in the end went for, for a commercial provider, is um, building up some kind of uh, feature store. So we, like, I, th I think I said previously, the event-driven approach was useful for um, building our own uh, pipelines and keeping them managed, but um, it's actually even more useful to, to store them uh, in some kind of database that can be easily accessed. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of it is uh, computationally. So you want to know, um, you don't want to do all your feature calculations at the point when uh, you want to make your predictions, but you do want to do that uh, before. And then also um, you would like to, um, uh, yeah, fetch, like they all might happen at different points in time. So you would ideally want to um, standardize on, on some particular point in time as well. Yeah, feature stores are, such a buzzword right now in the community i mean it's not a day that goes by that we don't talk about them i just actually put a video on feature stores up on linkedin because we made some animation videos and i feel like that was the biggest buzzword that along with maybe monitoring which is personally my favorite because it's such a difficult problem to attack and what do you monitor and and how and how do you make sure you're not getting alerts 24-7? But feature stores are, are also right up there. It's uh, one of the most talked about things in the community. So what made you, I, I'm interested to know, like, did you try any open source solutions or did you just go right out and buy it? So we initially, um, we initially actually started building our own. But um, it was actually taking a significant time to, to scale up. Um, and we briefly looked at some open source uh, solutions. And the, the problem with that is that I think the, the scope of, of them were slightly different. Um, so I think a lot of the open source ones are more like feature registries where you already have to have pre-calculated um, your features mm -hmm. and then um, you could register them uh, both in some kind of like historical database or some kind of real-time database. Um, but what we really wanted is to have like some kind of easy way of generating new features um, that you could then use for um, uh, yeah, real time and uh, as well for uh, the training data generation. So for some kind of batch process. So we, in the end, um, went for a product called Tecton that was like quite, uh, there was 
doing that out of the box, also quite new at that time. Uh, and we've been quite quite happy with that decision in particular, in the sense that um, it a um, uh, reduced the time that we spend on generating uh, additional features uh, significantly. Um, and then also, um, quite interestingly, we see that a lot of the work on generating uh, features, even for real-time applications, actually, we um, the data scientists were able to, to do themselves. So speaking again of the organizational uh, challenges um, that previously has been done by, by the engineering team and now could be done by the, the data team as well, or the data science team. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a nice benefit that I hadn't even thought of. And so when you're looking at your different pipelines and you're looking at your feature pipelines, how do you decide on which pipelines are going to be batch and which ones are streaming? And maybe we should preface this by asking you, what does real time mean to you? Because I've had a few people on here and they say, yeah, Real time, I was talking to somebody and they said, oh yeah, we need everything real time. And then real time to them meant they needed everything once a month. And so <laughs> it was ridiculous when they looked at them like, that's real time? What? That doesn't mean. So what is real time for you? How much latency is there or how much uh, time do you need? What does that mean to you? So it, it varies uh, a bit from... Uh, application to application, but I, I would generally think that um, uh, everything less than a second I would consider real time, and everything mm -hmm. above a second I would consider near uh, real time. Okay. So there are some applications where we actually have hard or use cases where we have hard deadlines, most notably uh, transaction monitoring, where um, there's an external party doing an API call, and we need to come back and say like, is this transaction okay or not, within 500 milliseconds. And a lot of the um, like even uh, structured streaming or so um, doesn't really like work for that properly. So you need to um, yeah in some way pre-calculate the features for for these applications and then have a reasonably lightweight process to to update that with the information that actually comes from the the transaction itself, which is a new piece of information. Yeah, totally. So so then it's only when you really need to do it because of some third party that you do the real time and the rest is batch or near real time? Or is there certain, like, cause I've, I've heard that it's always easier to do batch. I don't know, you can tell me if that's right or how you feel about it. Um, I think it's simpler to, to reason about uh, for the most part. Um, oftentimes, um, like, this isn't always true, but oftentimes batch transformations are stateless. So you have just um, like some kind of piece of data and then you do some kind of transformation and you end up with a, with a new piece of data. Hmm. And having uh, stateless transformations is very simple to, to reason about. Whereas if you have like some kind of event-driven system, you have all these questions of like race conditions and what happens if one event happens before the other event. And then we need to keep track of state and so on, which makes things like reasonably complicated, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of like, how do we decide? So I think in general, everything that works through batch, we try to do through batch, but if it doesn't work, then yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't work. It's more use case related really than it is anything else. And so I'm just thinking like when you're building these real-time distributed feature pipelines at scale and 
you encounter failures, how do you deal with that? Um, I mean, when you say failures, you mean technical failures or you mean like data? Yeah, failures? like mainly a failure with like the pipeline and or anything. Yeah, technical failure that you maybe you got to find a bug and you're not really sure where that bug is or you have to go and be a detective and find where it's coming from. Um, so... Yeah. Okay. So if there's an extra, so we have an um, we have engineers on call that would uh, generally uh, investigate that. Um, as you say, it can be quite quite confusing to understand um, where the um, the error actually um, originated. Um, in the end, we are trying to lock um, the the different parts um, between our uh, transformations. So again, one of the nice things about the um, event-driven design is that you can actually look very clearly at the inputs to your functions. Oh, nice. um, it doesn't always work because sometimes the, the local state might, might be updated and there might be some kind of weird uh, inference, but uh, yeah. And so as you're looking at, like going back to the feature store a bit, like, what stage did you realize or did you want to actually get a feature store? Was it something that you came into Tide with or was it once you realized, okay, we're going to go with this event-driven design and the best way to do that that we can see of right now is this thing called a feature store? Um, so I think there were multiple um, reasons. So one of them was strategic where we are trying to, in the end, um, automate every decision uh, within Tide. And I think the, the way this would work is by reducing the cost per model and with that the cost per feature as much as possible. Um, and that I thought, if you look at the cost per model, really a lot of the time goes into building the, the data pipelines. So trying to reduce that, I thought um, we would need to have like some kind of um, yeah, feature store solution. Um, which was the the primary motivation um, at that point? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And yeah, I think it's. Uh, I'm still quite quite happy that we we went down that road. Mm. So then, when you're because you've been through these three stages, and I look at them, and it's like, oof, you were in the trenches for a while, and as you can recommend to others now going through this and seeing these different styles or maturity levels of feature pipelines, do you feel that it's like, how would you recommend when to get a feature store or what to do with that, that whole concept? Because it is such a, a hyped up item right now, right? And so I think it's easy for a lot of people to say, oh, well, I just need a feature store. And then you add, I, I saw someone in the community drawing a diagram of the Google maturity level two, um, and then adding all these different tools that would be each piece. And uh, if you don't know what, what I'm talking about, Google put out a paper uh, and given different maturity levels and basically how automated your machine learning system is. And they put in the community, this person put this diagram with all these different pieces and what they were going to do. 
And I was looking at it like, wow, that's amazing. Good luck. <laughs> How much of this do you already have in place? Right? Because it could be crazy to set up. And especially if it's a small team, it could be very difficult and take a lot of time. So I guess the real question here is, you with all your wisdom, what would you recommend from a maturity standpoint? When is that breaking point? Like you should go out and get a feature store. So I think the question is go out and get a feature store. So I think like as an organization, you should try to get a, a feature store, but that can mean very simple things, right? It can mean just having a process of where you create tables in your, um, in your data warehouse that have a certain structure that makes it very easy to extract feature values. I think like looking into commercial like solutions, to me, I think the, the only real purpose of that is if you need to somehow calculate features in real time. So if, if it's not okay for you to have um, freshness of features that, um, that your data warehouse can't, um, can't facilitate, that to me, I think would be the, um, the boundary of when you would move to, to some kind of commercial solution. Mm. So it's really for me around like uh, freshness um, requirements. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. And so as you're looking at like the feature store, can you summarize like some of the greatest problems that the feature store solves for you? Sure. I think it's, um, well, reducing the, the effort that goes into uh, creating a feature and, um, yeah, putting it into production. So reducing the cost per feature uh, in that sense. Um, also reducing uh, handover uh, requirements. So I think uh, said earlier as well that uh, now uh, data scientists can create uh, features themselves rather than having to rely on uh, data engineers. Um, and I think uh, there's also monitoring uh, is much easier if there's uh, one system through which all your, your features mm. go. And yeah. you get some, some basic stuff uh, out of that as well. Yeah, that, that is also another big thing, monitoring that. And I know that is, that is huge, a huge piece of it. Um, and then there's a great question in the chat that just popped up. It's what problems does a feature store introduce, if any? Um, so, I mean, with any additional uh, piece of your stack, you are adding in uh, additional um, complexity. So um, I think there is a piece on like you are in a way um, tightly coupling like a lot of your prediction services to one particular pipeline, right? So in theory, if one of these pipelines would um, go down, then would create quite a lot of like downstream impact. And then there are kind of like subtle iterations on that point as well. So specifically um, like versioning is kind of like somewhat painful of features where, well, it's not like, they're actually like process solutions to that as well, but you need to at least think about it. Um, where um, if you like want to make a change to a feature, then you can't just make a change to the feature, right? Because that would like create, like create a different distribution of the feature, which then would mean that your models are not um, adequate anymore. So like um, that I think becomes a little bit more difficult. Well, I think the, the solution is also not particularly difficult in the sense that you just don't do it, right? You just create new features for every, for every iteration, mm. but it is something that, that needs to be actively uh, managed and, and create some danger in that sense as well. Yeah. If people don't follow process. 
Yeah, the tightly coupling is when you talk to engineers about that, they go, ah. <laughs> and so I've got a great question from David here in the chat. And this one's going to make me, David, you're going to make me read a little bit, huh? So how did you approach dynamic features like rolling? And there's a lot of acronyms in here, like rolling EWMA. There's probably a special word for that, which I don't know. Uh, EWMA online filters or even RNN type models as features. And I am thinking about features that you will not store permanently in a feature store and might involve some state like in a rolling mean or RNN embedding. I guess I'm asking about where does the model end and the feature start from the perspective of the system and the engineering? That's a great question. Yeah, um, I don't have a <laughs> great, great answer to that. Um, it depends, right? Um, so if you think that these, so I guess in the end, what what the, this question comes down to is that what has become like common practice, I would say, is that this kind of stacking of models, right? So the output of one model is the input of kind of the next model. So that's it. So in, in some sense, that means that the output of one model is also, again, a feature. Um, and that is really a, a kind of like a design decision, right? So if you if you think that this feature will be likely reused then um, by, by other things, um, then might, maybe it makes more sense to, again, put it into the feature store so it might be reused by, by other stuff as well. Um, it also depends on like how your training is set up, right? If you're trying to, to train... Um, like if if your whole training pipeline is pretty much training the the first model and then the second model on on top, then probably it makes sense to not have it in the feature store, but have it more closer to your your model. Um, if if you do that, by the way, then you you have this thing that um, your features are not strictly numerical anymore, but you also have like other feature types, which again is not really a problem, but you just need to think about that, that it can have different types as well. Um, so I don't know, it's not really an answer, but it's more. David will let us know in the chat if that was adequate or not. So uh, another great one. How many features does the input data have prior to the store? In an industrial setting, you might have several hundred features already. So would a feature store there serve more to highlight what seems important? I'm not entirely sure I get the question to me, to be frank. So how many features does the input data have prior to the store? Feature so store. depending on, on which store you use, either it's already pre-calculated as features, so it's just the same number. Like you can you can have different processes pushing in different features, right? But it would just be the same if you're using similar to what we are using where the calculation um, or the transformation happens um, as part of the feature store. Then, then the input data doesn't have any features, right? So you just ingest raw data and transform it into features. Um, then the second question, so in an industrial setting, you might have several hundred features already. So would a feature store there serve more to highlight what seems important? Um, so if features, so one of the nice things is you oftentimes get like basic documentation with that as well. So you can actually not only see um, like what features does the organization have, so the discovery piece, but you can also see what does it actually mean and um, 
not not yet, but maybe it might might even make sense to to have a like very clear understanding of where it was particularly useful as well. Mm. Mapping in this this additional uh, metadata. Um, but yeah, so the the documentation piece and discovery piece is uh, is something that I would see uh, as part of a, a feature store as well. So, I so I just remember that I interviewed Kevin the CTO of Tekton in June last year. And I asked him, hey, do you have any like badges for people who create the feature that costs the most money or the feature that is the most used or things like that? And he was like, no, we didn't do that, dude. <laughs> I don't think he, he thought that was something to spend time creating, but I think that would be awesome. Imagine you could have a little, um, a little bit of challenge with your team to see who who makes the best feature and who has to go stand in the corner because they created the most expensive feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, we're getting through. So okay, to have a data store, you really need good data management and owners of the various features. Um, I mean, I don't think it has to do with having a data store, but I think in any kind of like growing organization, you would need to have um, good data management and data owners um, as well. This is more really a, a problem of scale rather than uh, technical mm. um, issues. Um, yeah. Tools can can help with that in the sense that um, all of that is in the end metadata and you would want to have it all in one place. Um, so if you have a feature store, it's very good if you can pretty much see it at the same place where you can see the feature and the code as well that defines the feature, also metadata such as a description and an owner. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's something that just comes with scale. Like you need to have like very clearly defined ownership of things, really, not only, uh, data. And, um, it's, it's also just becomes impractical to, to find the data that is relevant for you specifically, if there's no, um, like discovery, uh, process slash tool. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. I am wondering, oh, I just see another one came through in the chat. All right, second to last question. Have you ever used or built any feature stores that explicitly handle units and does dimensional analysis on derived features? I don't, I don't think that makes um, a lot of uh, sense to be, to be completely frank. Um, so the, the, okay, let me, so personally, I don't think it makes a lot of sense because in the end, it goes into some kind of model and it should really be part of the model pipeline um, to standardize uh, the feature in whatever way they, they want. And what's interesting as well, what is more important is um, that the um, training pipeline and the, um, the inference pipeline have the same units. So, are, and, and that you um, ideally uh, ensure by um, executing the same code in, in both uh, areas then it is to um, to decide which unit is actually more important. It's, al it's also interesting actually with bugs, right? So if like one of your, if you have a bug in your training data pipeline and in your inference pipeline, if it's the same bug, it's probably actually not that bad for the, for the whole system because both of them are at least the same. It's, it's probably not predictive or it might be predictive for, for some reason. Um, yeah. I like it. So now I want to jump on to the last question, which is how you deal with security. 
And how do you navigate these security concerns as you're looking at future pipelines? Um, so in the end, it's uh, mostly uh, access rights um, that you can, well, at least the way um, we are currently um, doing it, have for, for certain uh, features. Um, yeah, uh, I think, so I think like security is quite a, quite a wide topic. Is this related to like operational concerns or is it organizational? It would be good to get some more operational. Um, in the sense of, um, um, I'm thinking more about like these data pipelines and this data coming through and how you're making sure, yeah, there's the, is there like RBAC and you're, you're making sure the right people have access to this. Cause I'm, I'm just remembering when you said on that first job that you were at and how you weren't getting access to the right data and that was an organizational problem right and then could that have been fixed or has it been fixed now where you're at and how have you dealt with that problem organizationally i guess uh so that people are okay with giving you the data um, okay, so maybe a, a couple of things on that. So I think um, we are currently hiring a, a data data governance manager. Um, what I think my, my general approach is um, you can access most data as long as you somehow obscure it. Um, and oftentimes you can find some kind of way in which um, obscure data is still uh, useful um, in, in some sense. If you know what you're you're looking for, um, I think the the key there is more um, getting ahead in terms of proactively discussing with um, the in our case it's the compliance team, um, like how you can actually do that rather than having them come in late um, and then tell this is not okay, this is not okay, and so on. Because and then everything um, you've been working on for the last couple of weeks just goes out the window. Yeah. So I think it's more like proactively uh, engaging in some kind of discussion with them and then finding some kind of compromise as well, where it's, it's clearly not okay mm -hmm. to like directly um, expose some kind of like personal data. Um, but you can usually obscure it in some sense that you can use it. So I lied. It looks like the people want a little bit more from you. If you have time, there is one last question in the chat. What kind of models do you have up at the moment and how do you test and monitor and deploy the models? Um, so there's quite a lot of questions at the, the same. So we have up a variety. So from uh, the traditional booster trees, some kind of neural networks. Um, also have some uh, semi-supervised uh, uh, techniques as well. How do you test and monitor deployed models? So testing, there are multiple steps. So the first one is um, like after you, you write some kind of model test, there's unit tests, then there's also um, distributional tests, i.e. the accuracy um, above a certain, um, certain threshold. And depending on, um, on the use case, so whether it's a high risk use case or not, and we then either uh, put the model directly into production in the uh, AB testing way, or if it's not, so if it's a high risk, 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, so if it's a high-risk use case, we then have something uh, which we call shadowing, where we um, pretty much, like, uh, if the um, there's a prediction requested, we just log what we would have done with the new model, and then we analyze the distribution um, of the new model to understand whether it's, um, it's uh, accurate um, or not. Um, and then in terms of how do we monitor uh, deployed models, so specifically, I guess this is uh, distributional. So there we log all our predictions as well. And then at the moment, it's still, um, uh, we built a dashboard for, for every model. So it's not um, yeah, streamlined yet. But um, the, yeah, so we have uh, like every prediction service creates events based on the predictions that have been done, which are then end up through various processes in the uh, in our data warehouse, and we build some kind of dashboarding uh, on top of that. Um, yeah, which doesn't happen automatically at the moment, but uh, that's what we do. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this evolution of your MLOps journey. I find it fascinating to see what you've gone through. And again, you were in the trenches. You were trying to iterate and just evolve. This evolution for me is incredible and really looking at the evolution of the feature pipelines and then talking about the feature stores, which I think a lot of people have lots of questions around uh, because it is such a, a buzzword. It's been super insightful for me. I wanna thank you again. And everyone out there, if you're not in the Slack, go ahead and jump in it. We will see you on there if you want to continue the conversation. I know you're in it. So if there's any questions that you didn't get to ask in this chat with Hendrik, then you can ask him on Slack. All right, y'all. Thanks again, Hendrik. Yeah, looking forward to hearing your questions.